this is podcast take two. Yes. <laughs> and this is why we edit. Welcome back, everybody. I am your host, Natalia, and today I am here with the lovely and delightful and amazing, stupendous Denise Reedman, um, and she is the Director of Career Development and Alumni Services here at the George Washington Trachtenberg School for Public Policy and Public Administration. She um, has counseled me in my career life and has been fabulous and has seen all the tears um, because there's many tears all the time. Um, but she always has candy and tissues and it makes everything better. <laughs> um, so, Denise, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, first of all, I just want to say right back at you with all those compliments. Oh. I, it is. I, I, I think the world of you and I really am thrilled to do this for you. And I love having seen the evolution of you. Um, it, so sweet. It, it is. Um, so when you asked me to do this, of course, I said yes. So um, I'm thrilled to be here to share anything that I can share. Yes. I'm so excited. Okay. Well, tell the, tell the listeners, you know, who are you? Who is Denise? Um, that's a great question. It's like, do I answer from a professional perspective or from a, a personal perspective? I mean, like who, who I am is, you know, do you best want a little bit of my career kind career of? Career. And so I guess start off with like career in terms of what, what is it specifically that you do? Cause I, you have a yeah. big title, but what does that, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, what does that really mean? Um, so my title here, I, we're, we're a small office, which I love because it enables me to, um, not be, um, sitting behind a computer all the time. I really get to interact with students. So my role is everything from the strategic operations of this office, all the kind of the nuts and bolts of the administrative stuff, systems, processes. I get to, my favorite thing is I get to, I get to, um, directly advise students, which is my absolute favorite thing, and run workshops. So they're my two favorite things in the job to do, because I love just inspiring people to see their potential and see mm -hmm. who they can be. Um, the other aspects of my job, um, employer relations, making sure our students, I want them to be happy, but I also want them to be employed, making a difference in the world. So I do a lot with um, events with employers, doing outreach. I coordinate significantly with George Washington University, and I was just sharing with someone we had a meeting this morning. It's a really great university that there's a lot of collaboration, which mm -hmm. is speaks to my heart. I also do all of our alumni relations. So alumni services, I engage with them within career services, but also with making sure that they're engaged. I do our alumni awards, connecting them with faculty. Um, so uh, pretty much my hands are in everything. Her hands really are in everything because when I started at Trachtenberg, you were a one-woman show, but you just got a partner in crime. Oh, I like, know, literally after six just, years. Yeah, yeah. You were literally a one-woman show, and I 
remember even from like accepted students day when I came to visit here everyone's like go to Denise go to Denise I was like who is this Denise woman and then you came up and you're like hi I just do a little bit of this and a little bit of that <laughs> like you were like very casual about everything that you do and it's wild because you do so much you know it is a lot it is a lot there's not a lot of centers like this where it is you know the the one person we hired she just does kind of the career coaching side mm -hmm. so I still have a lot of that on my plate I think it fits who I am because I like doing a little mm -hmm. bit of every little thing I like being a generalist versus uh, you know kind of like digging in deep on something mm -hmm. and I say it has to do with the amount of caffeine and sugar in my system that's big fair. fan of chocolate and a big fan of coffee this is very true and I support that yes. so much so one thing, I, a huge thing I feel like you forgot to mention is that you also started the Women's Leadership Fellowship Program. Well, I didn't actually start it. Women came, I, I was this founding advisor with okay, it. Okay, you were founding advisor. Yeah, okay. but students came to me and they said this was, you know, and now we have several different programs like this, um, the Minority Leadership Program. But students came to me, I guess I've been here a little over six years, and mm -hmm. shortly after starting, and they said, we look at our school and it is more women than men. Mm -hmm. But when we're out in the workforce, we're seeing the people in leadership, it's more men than women. Mm -hmm. And even now. And they said, you know, what can we do about this? So three students approached me and we started the Women's Leadership Fellows Program. So, you know, it, what's been nice over the span of the six years is we've really developed a lot of infrastructure systems with the chairs and that I'm able to step back a lot more. But in the first couple of years, I was definitely very hands-on with it. And we have... I mean, it's gotten so competitive, which Natalia got in last year. It's very, very competitive um, program because it offers such tremendous professional training for women. And I see, um, I actually just got an email from one of the alumni fellows mm -hmm. who she started a program like this in her own organization. Oh, wow. So I think it just is spreading in so many yeah. ways. Um, and that's exciting to see. It is because, like, I, I loved, I still consider myself part of the program because we still all talk to each other. Our Facebook group is still super live. Um, I actually did an interview with Shanice. Her episode's oh, yeah. coming out soon. So fantastic! Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely like a collection. Just to explain a little bit more, um, it's basically this program where it's highly selective, like Denise said, and it's it was what twelve of us this year. Um, twelve of you. Yep. Yeah, for a nine month program. For a nine yeah. month program, and basically we just meet. Uh, once a month, and then we have retreats twice a year uh, with these incredible women. Just the like trainers in, are phenomenal. Incredible. Like, they just do the most insane things. Like, an insane in a good way. And honestly, that was, like, such a big inspiration to me to start the podcast. Mm, because fantastic. Yeah. yeah, just hearing, like, I want to hear from more women like them, and I want to hear from more women like me, and, like, what their struggles are, and what they're going through. And so... The fact that, you know, that helped me spawn kind of into this shows how much like that program has been an impact in my life. And I still talk with my mentor after these, you know, like nine months you're up. Like it's, it's wonderful. And it, you know, it kind of speaks to when you, you talk about this podcast and what I love what I do too, is that the women who train for the Women's Leadership Fellows Program, not only are they extraordinary trainers, but they share who they are in their lives. And yes. I think that that serves as an inspiration for people because a lot of times you'll see someone's title, you'll see them train, and you won't pull the curtain back. I always joke around, it's like the wizard. You know, mm -hmm. you don't see what's behind the curtain. So you get in awe and you think, I can't be that person 
Who am I to be this person? And then you find out what they're really like and they're how they got there, the pathway, which, you know, I always say it's a career jungle gym, not a career yeah. ladder. And the day-to-day struggles that they continue to have and how it just the humanity of it. I, I The phrase I use from the positive psychology world is I think it allows you, it gives you that permission to be human. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase, permission to be human, allows you to see that everybody else that you're idolizing is human too. Yeah, no, they... They definitely, definitely were. And that's, like, what I love about them. And they, more so than ever, like, I feel like they really cared about each of us that they met, which was so lovely. Like, these, I don't, I always make a joke, like, titles of these women that we brought in are not what you're going to find on USA Jobs. Like, you know, it's just, like, you have to already been there for some time, and someone was like, hey, we're going to put you in this role, because that's what they were. And, like, I, um, and... Two of them are also going to eventually come on the show. And so, yeah, so it's just like these type of connections, these type of bonds. But I feel like sometimes you underestimate how much a part like you have to play in that because you were such a huge part in starting that program and and um, and getting that going and bringing these women in. What was that first like for you to? It was hard because I have to say, because I've run a couple different leadership programs and Mm -hmm. I've been in several myself and it's probably a bit of a weakness for me in that I have, and I'm a trainer. So my standards for what I look for in people who come in and present, um, you know, it was a process. There were some people who like from right away were like, Oh my gosh, we need to keep these people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, finding people who fit our, what the topics were and who fit, you know, um, I think all of the trainers that the word that comes to mind is there's just an authenticity to all of Mm -hmm. them and finding people that we, could could come in and present like that was extraordinary and really important to me. And actually, one of them, um, it was through um, Karen Chopra and me sitting down and having coffee with her afterwards mm-hmm. after she trained with us. And she's amazing. She made a transition from the federal government to her own career, um, Chopra careers now. And she's so gracious with her time and energy. She helped me launch my own career happiness coaching business. Mm-hmm. And that she said, well, let me know. Let me know. You know, I can start referring people to you. And it was through seeing the possibility of that and somebody else. So it's been, for me, it's been a learning process. And I think one of the, also the challenges with it that's been great for me is learning when to step back mm-hmm. and to allow the chairs, the space to try things that I might've said, Ooh, I wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. Or we tried that two years ago. I'm not so sure. <laughs> and to, to know when it's important for me to speak up and when it's important for me to pull back. And that's, that's been really good growth for me. So I feel like I've gotten so much out of it more so than probably. It. Yeah. Well, but I do. So how did you get to GW? Cause you've been here a little bit over six years. So what was that like? Um, yeah. So I, um, just, a little bit about my background is I spent 15 years in the nonprofit world, you know, everything from national service to environmental education to poverty alleviation work. And then when I was at Brandeis, um, I was working on a poverty alleviation project. I talked about titles of intimidating. I had the the title was a project manager war on poverty. (laughs) Title just cracks me up. I'm like, oh my gosh, what an intimidating title. And um, they eventually lost funding and I was going to be out of a job. And um, so the CFO said to me, well, there's this position in career services seemed to be like really fit for it. Um, So I ended up giving it a try and it was a tough transition at first, which is one of the things I talk to students a lot about is we get kind of caught up like in the ego 
of what yeah. we want our title to be or this field. And it was really hard because I always had a cause. I was working on youth development, mentoring, poverty yeah. alleviation. All of a sudden, I wasn't going to have a cause. Mm -hmm. And I felt like everybody else around me was kind of laughing mm. because they knew that, like, you know, it's funny. I just had a student here for advising earlier before, and we were kind of sharing some of this. My kind of North Star has always been I love inspiring people to see their potential. It was what used to be in kind of poverty alleviation world. And then um, this world just, it, this fits my strengths. Mm -hmm. The other work I wasn't as great at. And it enables me to play to my strengths and minimize things I'm not as good at. And, you know, fortunately, I came into my life in my mid-30s, so I had enough, quote-unquote, I like to say, ingredients to know the ingredients of mine that weren't my best ingredients and know mm -hmm. which ones I really loved. So I ended up doing that for a while and building their career center. And it was a very similar community, familiar kind mm -hmm. of sense that we have here with things. Um, there was a lot harder. We had about I don't know, 55 different countries. So it was a lot of international students, very, very yeah. diverse. There was five different master's programs. So I had my hands full there. You think I was, I was starting that up from the, we used to joke around when I was there, my, my former boss and I, Tom Broussard, an extraordinary mentor, um, used to say I was building the track, building the train, driving the train and loading passengers at the same yeah. time. Oh, yeah. It was it was really a lot. So sometimes I feel like this job is easier compared to that. So I, I did that, and then I decided to move to D.C. for the man that I was dating at the time. And even though that didn't work out, <laughs> um, I got the Just never, you know what I mean? I know, I know. Never I, really I, I never, yeah, I never really loved Boston. It didn't really resonate with yeah. me, and D.C. really does. Unfortunately, he's moved on, no longer is in D.C., and I kind of got the city. But I thought I wanted to go back into the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. So I moved to D.C. and I worked at a wonderful nonprofit called Share Our Strength and really very, very smart strategic nonprofit doing incredible food security work. The job was not the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. It took me away from what I love working with people. I love that. It was so much. They worked with people over the country. So I was doing webinars and it just it was not the right environment for me. I thought I wanted to get back into that and I was very lucky that the predecessor in this job, who I knew through the world of um, this network of public policy yeah. schools, his wife had gotten a job in Liberia and he was going to move. And he said, do you want to throw your hat in a ring? Prep for three days for my interview here. It was a seven hour interview. Seven hours? Seven hour interview. To do what? Met with everybody from staff to faculty, had to present to students and alumni. It was intense and then that night I wrote thank you notes email thank you notes to like 25 people and then put in the mail two handwritten additional ones to the director and associate director that's bananas it was bananas but I knew there was only a certain number of schools like I'm so all about public service and yeah. there's not a lot of graduate schools around public service like this mm -hmm. in the country let alone ones that share the philosophy that this school does mm -hmm. that is so student-centric, that is so much more. We, I love that we do, students do extraordinary things here, but it's such an open, caring community. Yeah. And Kathy, uh, you know, my director, is so open and caring about people, her staff, her students. So, I mean, there's probably only maybe about not even 100 director-level jobs like this around the country. Yeah. So that this opened up here in D.C. with this kind of culture. Yeah. 
I was prepping for three days. That's seven hours, though. That's a shift. That's like, there was a lot of caffeine and chocolate in my system that day. I was exhausted, exhausted. Like, I want compensation for you. I know, but it was like I knew how much I wanted Mm -hmm. it. But it was really one of those where I felt I walked out of it and I was like, I did everything I could and I knew that I was the right fit. Yeah. So I was like, either. Uh, if there's someone else that they want, it wasn't like I was going to kick myself. Like I knew I presented the story of mm-hmm. me, which is what an interview is. No, it is. I feel like that's what you always tell us anyway to like, what do you, the every time I come to your office, what do you want your resume to say about you? Yeah. And I'm like, what do I want them to say about you? And know. you have to yeah. know what you need, what you want, what's your story you're telling the world. And mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's true. And I think that, you know, I'm thinking about this podcast and I'm thinking about my own evolution in life, you know. I can't believe mid forties at this point, um, but you look great. Well, thank you. you look great. <laughs> it's all the clean living and biking to work every day and chocolate. Um, and the chocolate. But I think one of the things that I've loved the most, particularly I would say in the past six years, and, and to be honest, the breakup like devastated my heart, mm-hmm. and it, it broke me down and it, it built me. You know, I re I transformed in a way that I it is beyond a gift. But I think one of the things that and this was in my early 40s is that how I show up in life in my job in my profession in my personal life mm-hmm. it is congruent and I think when people are younger there's definitely this incongruency where they feel like they have to prove something they take a job to do it or they dress in a certain way or they're doing work that they don't believe in and I feel like that that is when you can so when I ask those questions about the resume it's like how I always say it's not what do you want to do with your life, it's how do you want to be in your life, mm-hmm. and then what does that look like? Yes, I want your resume to be the best and your LinkedIn and all that. You know, when I want yeah. your interview, <laughs> I want I push hard on that. Yeah. But if you don't know what who how you want to be in the world, you can't put that down on paper. Mm-hmm. And those are tough questions, particularly when you're younger and you're still trying to figure out who that person is. So, I think once you have that alignment with how you show up in your life in all ways. Like, even my office that we're sitting here, like, this office is me to Mm -hmm. a T. It very much is. There's, like, many inspirational quotes around there. I know you change the quote on the board, like, every day. Yeah, it's very, there's plants. Like, there's plants, there's pictures of the outdoors. There's a dinosaur lamp. Why is it the first time I'm... Because, and, and again, because of play, like it is all, like I am all about making sure you play. There's so much research on the concept of play and that we lose as adults. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how could I not see a dinosaur lamp every single day? Mm-hmm. And when I turn on the light and not think it's funny, because there's something about a Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> with tiny arms and a large body. I that find incredibly, so I mean, I have an Olaf. I yeah. have, yeah. I mean, it's. There's a little marshmallow, a little dancing marshmallow. It's a s'more. It's, it's a, a s'more, s'more playing the guitar. Oh my goodness. Yeah, like, but that's what life is. I feel like as adults, we can do, particularly in this line of work where we all want to make a difference. Yeah. You can still do incredibly meaningful, impactful work mm-hmm. and have play. You don't need to lose your sense of self. And so when did you, because you said like now you're in your mid-40s and, and you started this like transition in your career in your mid-30s. Was that when you kind of got your sense of play, or was that way earlier in the start of your career? Um, it's ebbed and flowed. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there were times where, like, I was trying too hard to be something I wasn't. I was trying too hard. You know, I say one of the best things I loved is when I got into my 30s to be able to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best things. So, you know, there were definitely times where, you know, I taught environmental education, 
and um, you know that was certainly a sense of play. You know, I used to work at Acadia National Park and would put on a park uniform. I got to be Smokey the Bear once. <laughs> Here's the thing: I can totally picture you. Yes, in that outfit. You know when I was on. Actually, I think you know I was on Wheel of Fortune a couple years ago. In what Pat Sajak? That was the whole thing. I was on National Parks Week, and he asked me about that. Okay, I'm on a whole nother podcast and talk about the <laughs> random things that Denise is doing. It's like, crazy. You know, it's fortune. crazy. So, you know, so I definitely had the play in those, but then I was like, oh, I need the responsible job. Yeah. You know, I need to go back to graduate school. And, you know, I think a pretty critical thing in my life, and again, the play has really ebbed and flowed. I would say now it's it's like in my life constantly and even something as simple as the fact that I bike to work every day makes yeah. me go playful every day and I bike home and I stop at the little pet daycare the doggy daycare so I can like laugh at the dogs like I think <laughs> it's really important to bring it into your life so when I was in graduate school I really did not want a job after graduation which is so ironic that I run a career center at a graduate school right now um I had had an old boyfriend in my 20s lovely lovely man who had written me letters from India and I became intoxicated with that kind of the world and I didn't want a job and a job fell in my lap yeah and it was an amazing opportunity um working for who's now the senator, Angus King, independent thinker, just doing prevention programs for kids, amazing boss, Susan Savelle, loved it, so I took it. Mm-hmm. My heart wasn't singing, mm-hmm. and I knew it. And finally, at about a year and a half mark, I was running a, a VISTA program, doing prevention programs for the state. Mm-hmm. And um, I said to her, I told her my heart wasn't singing, and I knew I wanted to leave, and I made this decision um, that I was going to go to Nepal to teach English. And it was crazy. So I quit my job at the end of that year. I worked for an upper bound program that summer and my flight was scheduled to leave to go to Nepal on 9-26-2001. So 9-11 hit and I was like, do I get on a plane? This was terrifying. My flight was scheduled to leave two weeks afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, because I was trying to embrace what you said, this yeah. whole playing, like yeah. living your life fully. And um, this is a story I use a lot when I train. And I, you know, after 9-11, like everybody else, you know, you didn't oh, think yeah. you were ever going to smile again, that the world was, you, you thought the world was going to forever be frozen in time. And I felt like I wanted to honor the people who died. So I was reading a lot of obituaries of people who died. I just wanted to know their stories, mm-hmm. you know, always about people's stories. And um, there were so many coulda, woulda, shoulda in obituaries. Mm-hmm. And I still remember distinctly there was a woman who died in the World Trade Center who said she really wanted to be a loud and singer. You know, there was someone else who was saving up their money to quit and go back to school. And there were so many stories about it. And I knew I had to get on that plane. And it was terrifying. And it was one of the best things I did. I taught English in Nepal and then traveled around and played in Vietnam and Thailand. And my, you know, when I was turning 30, like when the people were settling down, I was like, I have a choice. Mm-hmm. What do I really want to do? I want my heart to sing. When you were on that plane, was it empty? Was it packed? Was it, what was that feeling? Like, you Well, know, I remember so- standing in line at the Philadelphia airport. I, my mom had dropped me off, and I would talk to my dad on the phone. He was still working, and I was sobbing. Mm-hmm. I was sobbing. I was terrified. And um, I got on the first, the first leg of the plane. It was probably about a third full, and I was really nervous. The second leg of the flight from Detroit to Tokyo I wasn't worried because I was like, 
going to Japan. Like I just didn't, I, it didn't yeah. feel like that. Um, and it was ironic actually. I feel like when I was in Asia compared to what people experienced in the United States in the aftermath, I think I actually felt safer over there because yeah. you weren't dealing with anthrax and potential future bombing. And you were, you know, it was so it wasn't a good year. <laughs> it was <laughs> it's not, not a good, a good year. year at all. It was not a good year. Um, so I feel really, and it was also really fascinating to be teaching Nosha Nepal, one of the poorest countries in the world and having mm. people express such sympathy for me yet these people like have nothing mm-hmm. you know to, to experience that to understand global poverty to see to read the news you know the newspapers there to see the perspective that they had of America mm-hmm. and what was going on um, it was extraordinary you know I, I had put my stuff in storage someone had taken my cat for that year like I just I never wanted that that could have, would have, should have. So that's kind of when you, mm-hmm. it's a longer answer to something about play, but it's like in one of these things. And I would say I lost it again in a bit of my 30s. I definitely lost it a bit. You're not losing it now. Like even to the fact that we were joking before we started that I've got a picture of a sloth behind you. Yeah. You know, that when I try to get caught up in stuff mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, the stress of things, I look at the sloth and I'm like, slow down. And it, it was interesting. So I, you know, I went on a long vacation yeah. to Scandinavia who really has a great balance in life. And um, they just, this these reminders about slowing down. Mm-hmm. And when I was on vacation, I read Ariane Huffington's book around Thrive, around the busyness mm-hmm. and the competition that we all have to be busier than other yeah. people. When you're busy, do you play when you're busy? No. Mm-hmm. You don't see kids saying, I'm busier than you, do you? No, kids, like, come over and play at my house. Yeah. Let's go to the pool. You know, there's a wonderful book called Play by uh, Dr. Stuart Brown, who founded the National Institute of Play. Great job. Because, you know, why not? I know. Like, what a great job title. But it's, there's ways to play in life. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's so much of, like, a lot of the incredible women that you brought in and that we had at, during during the time in the program and also just, like, really incredible women that I've met outside of here. Um, or even um, Catherine Omet, who her her title is Chief Goodness Officer. Uh, that's a, that's actually how I, mean? I connected with her because I was looking through her alumni list and I yeah. saw that title and I was like, I have to know this person. And you and look at the way she dressed. She's super smart, right? Yeah. Super good at what she does. You never see her in anything that is not colorful and playful in her so outfit. So bright. professional, but yes. she brings in this lightness in her room. And her so shoes are always fabulous. Oh my God, I have shoe envy of her. Her shoes, because she owned a shoe store yes. at one point. She's, I'm actually talking to her um, the weekend, so she's, I, she's delightful. And, but it's that example of like, you can be who you are mm-hmm. and have an impact. And did you feel like you found that kind of when you went to Nepal? Or did you feel like... You kind of woke up one day and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm being myself. It's been thing. it's been a real evolution, I would say, since moving to D.C. Mm-hmm. My first year in D.C. was the hardest year of my entire life. I knew one person. My heart was shattered. And this was a man I was going to marry. My yeah. heart was shattered. I was in a job I didn't like. I knew nothing and nobody. And mm-hmm. um, I'm a big fan of monarch butterflies. And I felt like that was, if you know the story of monarch butterflies, when the caterpillar goes in... I don't know if you know this, but mm-hmm. when caterpillars become butterflies, if you look at the inside in that crystallis, their bodies turn to mush, their head, their heart, and their digestive system change shape and size to become a monarch butterfly. Wow. It's incredible. So to me, that first year here in D.C., 2012, was like my year in the crystallis. And actually, <laughs> if you look above you, I have the picture. I went to go see in the beginning of 2013, mm-hmm. I went to go see the monarch butterfly migration. There's a spot where millions of them spend the winter in Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
that was, I would say, the beginning of play coming into my life on a more regular basis. And it's been, it's been a process. It's funny. I think I have a quote around here somewhere that I think really sums it up. <laughs> of course I do. This is one of my favorite quotes. And I feel like this is what the past couple of years have been yeah. for me. And it says, maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't you so you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the past, since that, the past five years in D.C., I've just been shedding more and more and just becoming that person, that mm-hmm. play, that if you look at pictures of me when I was a little kid, my dad says I look like a little Lucifer. He said, I have this little devil in my eyes, <laughs> oh my not God. in a bad way. Oh, he like, said, what? he said, I always had this little devilish look in my eyes, this impish little look, like I was up to something. Mm-hmm. Like I had so much joy in play as a girl, a little kid. And he loves these pictures of me. You know, my eyes, he always says, are just like dancing, you know, like just something up mm-hmm. to something. And it came back. Was there like time when you were younger that you thought, oh, I am playful or I am happy. And then you look back now and you're saying like you were being something that you weren't. I don't know if I ever went back on that. I knew Mm -hmm. that I wasn't. I knew that I was struggling. I struggled. Mm -hmm. I struggled. I didn't like myself. I really struggled with feeling very insecure, constant comparison to other people, particularly when you talk about not a pretty face, you know, I would, I would get dressed up and then I would go out and I would look at other women and I'd be like, oh, why would a guy talk to me? Look at that woman. She's yeah. so much, I mean, like constant, you know? So I, I, to answer your question, I think I knew that she was inside of me, but I didn't feel her. Mm. I knew she was trapped inside of a lot, a lot of layers. And I had to go through a lot. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, Tara Brock, Radical Acceptance, which kind of changed my world mm-hmm. coming into D.C. Um, and, it, and I think that we all have a trance and that we continue our behaviors. And as she talks about, through life, we acquire the spacesuit. Mm-hmm. And we operate from this world of the spacesuit, and we think the spacesuit is us. Mm-hmm. And we get caught in a trance of behavior, which keeps adding layers to the spacesuit. And once we stop doing that, we start to shed the spacesuit and show up who we are. So mm-hmm. I knew underneath that spacesuit, there was that little girl, that little Lucifer <laughs> underneath there. I know my dad's going to be like, what? Um, you know, but I knew that she was there. I just wasn't sure how to get there. Mm-hmm. Did you, so like your dad, like knowing that you were like that when you were little, were there many times that your life where he was just like, you're not you? What Did you have a lot of people kind of being like, you're not being you? Yeah. This is not who I remember? Or um, Not necessarily not who I remember, um, but, you know, it's interesting. I the, the man who had written me the letters from India when I was in my early 20s doing my national service out in Colorado you know, I, I wrote him a letter when in my 40s, um, really, really wonderful man. I felt like he saw me then. He was We had a very, very close relationship. Mm-hmm. There was some type of connection. He saw me then, who I've become now. He saw inside the spacesuit. Mm-hmm. I think um, my oldest sister, Edina, in particular, and both my sisters, but in particular my oldest sister, Edina, like, I think she's always seen inside the spacesuit. I think I have certain friends who've seen that, and then they've worried when it it isn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I actually had a friend the fall before I moved to D.C. I was the relationship I was in was not was not doing well for me. And she actually called my sister because she said, Denise is so not acting like her. So so I have friends who've seen it many times. Do you feel like those I mean, obviously they have. But what do you think is the most the most that's kind of impacted your life in terms of your career and like getting ahead or doing what you want? How has that really affected you? 
See, see the first part of the question? So kind of like... I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase yeah. it. Um, knowing you're not yourself, and but thinking you kind of are, and then how has that affected helping you get where you want to be? You know, I have a perfect example of this since it was amazing. Is uh, two years ago... Was it two years just last year? Oh, yeah, last summer... Um, the days start to blend, I know. honestly. So I... Um, you know, I've been working really... Uh, been very cognizant about this, you know, particularly with my work, my, my private practice, my career happiness coaching. And I, I was accepted to present at the World Congress on Positive Psychology. Ooh. It was amazing. I was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, it's really, really smart people there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh gosh. And I was really worried about the presentation. And the first 15 minutes of it, I could tell I was not showing up with my whole self. I could feel it in yeah. my head. Um, and part of the presentation, I was uh, quoting what one of the positive psychology researchers, Mikhail met me high had said to me when I was at the Congress, the event two years before, when I had said, oh, I'm just a career happiness coach, but your work has such an impact on me. And he said, it's people like you who make the research real. So it wasn't about the titles and the egos. And as I was saying this in this presentation, where I knew it was in my head, I could feel myself, you know, I do meditation. I yeah. could feel myself breathing deeply and starting to present for my whole self. And that last 45 minutes, total flow. I could feel that moment. And then it was really amazing as a month later, I was presenting another national conference in front of 350 people. I'd never been in a room that large. And because of that experience where I had it trained as well for the first part, I showed up and I was my entire goofy self, which I think that's where one of the things where people really be themselves is that vulnerability to being really silly. To just being yourself, knowing that people might laugh with you or might laugh at you, and it's still just putting yourself out there. So in the past couple of years, I've been able to kind of notice it. Again, it requires slowing down, noticing when you're not showing up as authentically yourself. I think that's true because I feel like that was definitely me when I first, I mean, it's still me to some extent, but when I first, you know, moved here because I was like oh I have to be this way or I have to be that way because that's what I kind of have to do to like get the job or you know get the internship and not really um kind of taking a second to kind of think about what I want or what I wanted to or will this really get me where I need to go and I I don't know about you but I have come across so many friends older and younger than me or the same age that I think I recognize that so much in them, even when I was going through it. And I, you know, would like get mad at them. Like, you need to do this and you need to do this because you have to calm down. Like, this doesn't matter. And, um, but I wasn't taking my own advice. And do you feel like in your position, like you do that a lot? Like you weren't taking your own advice, at least when you're at Brandeis, because you said like, this is more of a transitional. Um, yeah, a little bit. And it's so funny. I have to tell you, like, my natural nature is I want to start asking you questions that I know that because <laughs> I'm so like, oh, I want to know. Like, because, and I guess my answer probably stems into the questions that I would ask you that I yeah. feel like are really important. So, human beings have by nature a negativity bias. So, we remember mm-hmm. the really bad things. And, you know, I think in the past six years, mine, I've been studying positive psychology pretty intensely in the past six years. So, that's helped me not. To, to listen more to myself because I know things like savoring. Mm-hmm. So when something positive happens in our life, we need to... So when something negative happens, it gets stored immediately in our amygdala and it's like this when it's a really mm-hmm. negative thing. Positive things, we have to almost force our brain to remember it, to mm-hmm. store it. So, you know, the question I would have asked you is like, note, like what, when, what are the moments when you notice 
that you are showing up differently, mm-hmm. when you are noticing you're showing up as your whole body, when you're being authentic, because the more you savor those moments, and they actually say it's somewhere between 30 seconds to 120 seconds, the more you notice that and are aware of that, you're building different neural pathways. You're also catching yourself, you know, instead of the usual pathway mm-hmm. you're doing. So I think particularly in the past six years, I've slowed down. It's been a gradual process, particularly I would say in the past year, it's been a really gradual process, which the slowing down, those pauses, um, they call it the sacred pause, like mm-hmm. allows me to stop and notice instead of doing that habitual behavior, like, oh, how do I want to show up right now? And it also, we talk a lot about, and I, I work with you all about this, like not judging how you're feeling. Like when you came in my office before, there was not only you were feeling so bad about what mm-hmm. you were doing, but then you were judging how you were feeling, which then you're doing this. And it's just honoring how you're feeling like, oh, I'm feeling stuck. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling overwhelmed. Just being with it and nourishing it allows that pause that you don't go into the same reactionary behavior and instead choose different responses. Mm -hmm. And I would say over the past, you know, several years, I'm able to not only tell myself that advice, but when I'm sharing it with someone else, I'm able to notice it Mm -hmm. and, and be like, oh yeah, I needed to remember that. I need to do that as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a good practice. I got to remember that myself. And it's a practice. It's yeah. it's not like a permanent thing. You constantly have to keep strengthening the muscle. So did this all kind of like self-actualization lead you to starting your own business? No, because I've been doing that for four years now. Okay. Um, actually, what started me in my own business is one of our faculty here had a friend of hers who needed. She goes, oh, she goes, would you ever do something on the side? So I started <laughs> to do this and I realized how much I how much need there was, how much I loved it. And as, and as much as I love our students here, sometimes working with uh, external clients challenges me in ways that is pushes me as a career coach and as an individual, which then I get to bring back to my job, mm-hmm. which is really amazing. What's been wonderful about my business is it's been able to evolve very organically over the past mm-hmm. four years, and it's grown tremendously, but in a really organic way, which has felt very natural to me. So that's kind of how my business has just kind of grown. So can you tell, okay, so I didn't even know you had this side hustle. Yeah. <laughs> which I always support a good side hustle. So tell me how, like, what was the genesis of, the, like, where did it start? You career coaching everybody and anybody. You put up on LinkedIn. Well, yeah, it was, what was funny is, um, you know, I had, I had done this one coaching um, for this um, friend of one of our faculty. Yeah. who's a friend of mine, uh, Jasmine Johnson. Amazing faculty. You should actually interview. Um, <laughs> plugging other I know she's, yeah. a, she's a dear friend of mine who I just think the world <laughs> of um, but um, so I had done that and then when Karen came by and yeah. I was like I, I don't know what made me think about it maybe because I had done the one and I realized I get so much joy in helping people see mm-hmm. who, like it breaks my heart when you all are in here and you're struggling you have no idea how much my heart is hurting because I just see the extraordinary potential mm-hmm. and I want you to see it, but I know I can't force you to see it. Sometimes mm-hmm. I say that my job is merely, you know, besides the, all the nuts and bolts of interview resume, yeah. things, but the exploration side, sometimes it's just holding up a mirror in front of you and turning the angle just slightly so you see yourself differently. Mm-hmm. So I realized how much joy I got out of that. So I just started to do it. And then I met with Karen and Karen says, let me know when you hang out a shingle. Mm-hmm. And I started to coach and I, 
like um, love of learning is one of my strengths. So yeah. I love that it was pushing me. There were so many times where I had some of these clients where I was like, oh, my God, I am a fraud and a half. Why is someone going to me? I don't know enough about this. And then I would push myself to learn new yeah. skills, get certified in resume writing, all of these things. Got certified in Gallup Strength Finders because I was like, I need to get better. So it's been this growth and this evolution um, I would say my most of my clients are public service oriented, but in this town, I've had people, I, you know, I've worked with people in the fashion industry and the pure financial services, I've worked with like a reporter or a journalist. So mm-hmm. um, my sweet spot tends to be, because of my own background, tends yeah. to be people in public service. But, you know, I w- recently worked with one client who I adore, a uh, big, big experience in IT for like 20 years, but has had his own dance company. And so we had to merge the two. And he's actually now the executive director of a um, arts and culture organization in Frederick. Extraordinary. But like that pushed me in so many ways. Like how do you tell that story in the resume, in the cover letter, in his interviews? Mm -hmm. So the, the private business has pushed me to be a better coach. I have failed. I got really into um, the hope theory of positive psychology because there was a client of mine where I missed the mark mm-hmm. and I was like what did I do and it was you know I, I deepened that and now she's actually doing really great work and it was I thankfully am able to I came out of that because I just missed something mm-hmm. so it pushes me in ways that I think they both feed into each other and is there is there something in like your private practice that you feel like you can't do and I know you said like they push you in positive ways yeah. but like what can't you do in your private practice that you can do in here or vice versa. Yeah, so it's interesting. So just because the sheer numbers of all of you, I can't yeah. see you as regularly. Yeah. And I can't push you to that level, some, mm-hmm. to that extent. Sometimes that's why I do some of these workshops outside of yeah. here, like the career happiness workshop I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. the mind mapping within design center thinking, because I don't have the bandwidth because there's, you know, there's so few of us to yeah. be able to do that much intensive with students. Um, so that makes me kind of sad sometimes because I want to push. I think when someone's... Um, paying me through a private client, I sometimes will push them even harder mm-hmm. um, at a certain level in their career that here with students, it's like, I have to be careful. You know, you guys are paying a lot of money for schooling and I want a hundred percent, I want to push you, but I want you to feel like you feel really comfortable and supported and cared mm-hmm. for. So that I, I'm, it's when I'm doing my private practice, it's just me here. It's not just me. It is your experience with faculty and with the school that I'm representing all of that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'm really careful with that. Um, again, with my private clients, one of the biggest things is I can see them more often yeah. on a more regular basis than, than all of you. But with all of you, even if I don't see you that way, even if I see you maybe less frequently, I get to see the evolution of you over the two years, two, mm-hmm. three years, which I love. I love. People don't know. Like when, you know, I always feel like I'm a big birder. I love nature. And it's always like this little fledgling, like during graduation, <laughs> it's like they're going and it always makes me sad. But like, I know that that's what I want. Yeah. We all want that. We want you to be able to fly from the nest with that. But, you know, I know that I remember seeing you from the beginning and watching people's evolution is extraordinary. And then getting emails from people down the road, you know, because of this, now I'm doing this and this. Cause you really have impacted. So like, you know, everybody in this town, you truly know everybody it's, in, this, it's, in every single It's department. funny. It Sometimes matter. I'll go somewhere. I dated a guy a couple of years ago, and he's like, everywhere we go, he's like, you run into somebody. And I'm like, yeah. Last night I was getting ice cream in Mount Pleasant. It's Yesterday was National Ice Cream Day. Ran into one of our alum. Mm-hmm. Um, Friday I was biking home from here. Ran into one of our current students on the bike trail. <laughs> you literally know 
everybody because the okay so Denise sends us on this listserv <laughs> jobs like all the all the time like it's an understatement to say all the time and even when you were on vacation I know but you were like so at three in the morning because it was I'm like in Sweden and I'm like okay the light is not going down I'm gonna send this to you all you would still send us stuff and I was like this is absurd but you send us so many things from so many different I know businesses like government like crazy government positions well too. I feel I, very lucky I mean uh, you know again I really attribute this to the quality of our school I, I feel like in some ways it be the quality of our school and the quality of our alumni make my job so easy because mm-hmm. I get people want our students because you know I say our students are so talented so bright so driven but there's a personableness there's a warmth there's an openness to our students that I think just the combination of the two, people want our students. So it makes my life really easy and it makes it fun. Like I get to do some cool stuff because of some of the alumni or the employers. I've gotten to see some really cool things mm-hmm. here at this, you know, in DC, you know, and, you know. Just also people, I don't, I don't know how you do it, but I remember I was sitting in your office one time and um, we were going through LinkedIn because we were, ta- I think we were talking about like job titles or something. And you came across an alumni that you did not know. And you're like, I'm going to shoot him a really quick email. Hold on a second. And, like, I don't think I would ever – I mean, I've done it now because yeah. um, you forced me to network. <laughs> and um, But, like, I don't know – I don't know – I don't – I know I would not have had the courage and it still kind of freaks me out. To, but, like, here's – you know, here's an example. So one of our alum I saw the other day, really cool job title, Benton Murphy. He is a senior philanthropy uh, – senior philanthropic – program officer, I can't remember, Mm -hmm. the uh, Greater Washington um, Community Foundation. Mm -hmm. Great title. I know that Jasmine Johnson does a lot of work around some of this. So I was like, let me send him an email. So we got together for coffee. The small world connections, it turns out that a Asylum Seekers Assistance Project, a nonprofit that I started to volunteer for when I got Mm -hmm. back from volunteering with the refugees, which the woman launched because of taking Jasmine's social enterprise Mm -hmm. class, Benton has met with her like four times with some work around the found, what the foundation is doing. Mm-hmm. He happened to mention that organization. I was like, oh, Joni over there. Like, it was so interconnected like that. And so on one hand, you view it as me reaching out to someone that's a cold email. On the other hand, I just think like, I am sure that this person is connected in this web mm-hmm. of wonderful work people are doing. And of that example, it was just like, oh my gosh, the connections were extraordinary. It still baffles my, it will never not baffle my mind because just seeing you do it, like literally does baffle my mind. I'm like, how does she know every single person in the world that well, exists in DC. I don't I, think I, I do. I don't think I do, but you know, I mean, I know, you know, here it is. Like you give me a list of facts. Remember, I'm not going to remember it. I know stories and I know people. Mm-hmm. I might not remember people's names, but I'm going to know stories. I mm-hmm. love hearing people's stories. So I remember, Oh yeah, we talked to that alum and there's this story and that story. And I love connecting people with opportunities Mm -hmm. like I want people to see who they can be and then make sure that they have the opportunities to make that happen and so like you do that all for like other people how do you balance your life because if you have a private business and you have to and you meet with them more regularly than you meet with students and like I know you meet with students often because you are booked months in advance (laughs) and you do drop in office hours and so like you're here all the time like how do you 
so be you, right? You know? you know, and so, you know, several years ago, I was struggling with this. Um, and it's interesting. I, I had a couple experiences, which kind of made me realize like how much, you know, I, I needed to bring that balance into my life. Um, you know, I went to Oaxaca, Mexico and uh, did the Spanish class. And I just remember how happy I was doing nothing most days there, just sitting in the Zocalo and drinking hot chocolate. And I was like, okay, this is me at my best. And I, again, when I was just in Scandinavia, I was like, I am at my best when I am slower. So, and I believe so much as I talk to people about this, finding micro moments to be, first of all, you have to create balance in, mm. in system. I don't believe in work-life balance. I always mm. tell people it's how you want your work to fit with your life. So when my business was growing a lot initially, I was doing nights and weekends and I was totally resenting it. I was like, yeah. I love my friends. I love to be outdoors. I want, I'm dating. Like, I don't want this. So I was like, okay, this isn't working. So I had to figure out how to balance this. So I was able to do my business and do my job. Um, Karen Chopra said this to me once, and I loved this line. It stayed with me. She said, you have to know what you want to say yes to. Mm. That helps you to know what to say no to. So that on a bigger level has really helped me. But, you know, like little things that I do... Um, you know, like I'll walk to the farmer's market here and take a 10 minute break and go walk to the farmer's market. I meditate every day. You know, I read, I, you know, I make sure I have lunch with friends. I've learned that like, even often instead of having lunch with friends, I go for walks with people. Um, I can't, you know, I, I recently, when I came back from Scandinavia, because I just really appreciate how they balance life. I do not turn the news on at all in the morning. I sit down on my patio you know, with my breakfast and a book and sit out there, and even if it's five minutes. Mm-hmm. So I believe very much it's micro shifts. I, um, I actually just wrote a, I read, you're going to laugh, but I write a blog for one of the places. Of you. Well, I write uh, my positive you. psychology uh, certificate in, and I just mm-hmm. wrote one that's on the, um, the holy grail of Danish career happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the pacing with things. So I think some of it is you know, I can't control the fact that I have a certain number of advising hours. I can control how I show up in front of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone shows up early, I'm like, you know, I actually need this time. I keep my appointments right on time because I need my space in between. I will, you know, often uh, if I'm feeling kind of eh, I'll put flowers on my desk. I'll go have a piece of chocolate, which I got a stash in my desk. Yes, you know, I make sure that the little micro things... I'm doing because it's not the big stuff. I might not be able to create another two and a half week vacation, but I can create little, I mean, even the fact that I've got this little bicycle for my trip there (laughs) to keep me reminded to Mm -hmm. slow down and to be balanced and to bring the play, you know, it can be just listening to one funny thing on, you know, on your computer. And so that's how I feel like I've done a lot better. And because I've slowed down, I notice when I'm out of balance much faster instead of getting to the point where I need to go to a spa or to massage, yeah. you know, I'll be like, oh, okay. Like I do a lot of 15, there's a great place in DuPont Circle that is 15 minute massages. Sometimes I'll do a 15 minute massage. Ooh, you know, nice. sometimes if I have time in the morning, I'll go early enough to stop at my favorite French bakery, Un Je ne sais quoi, and get a croissant. Mm-hmm. You know, it might mean leaving my house 15 minutes earlier. It might mean putting my hair up in a ponytail versus doing my hair so I can sit there and see them because they're lovely people there and have a chocolate croissant. Mm-hmm. So it's the little things in life, not the big stuff. And how do you feel, like, as a woman, you came to that place? Because I feel like often, you know, you hear about women, like, having this caretaker and, like, nurturing role, which is which is all well and great, but I feel sometimes guilty when you take time for yourself. And, I, and weirdly enough, because I remember the first time I 
had a meeting with you and I was in my mind I've always been told to like show up early like 15 you know what I mean and I was early and I like knocked and I like walked in and because your door was open right. and so and you're like hold on I'll be just like oh okay and I that did that's so, really funny yeah it was just such a a change for me because mm-hmm. I was not used to anyone that's ever so doing yeah. that yeah and I was like oh I don't know how this is gonna go because like in my mind it was like oh this is rude because I'm, I guess I'm so used to people being like, all right, let's just jump to the next thing. Right, right. And, and, and that could have been perceived mothers that they could be like, oh, she, Denise is rude. She's setting these boundaries. I'm not going to start right then. And I'm yeah. like, right. I, that's so funny. I never really thought about that. But I'm, you know, um, that's funny. I just never really thought about it in that way. Now that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I no, should make sure I, I explain that to students when I'm like you. And I feel like, because it's not a bad thing, because I think it's like a really lovely thing. And I over time, like, especially after getting to know you, I was like, okay, this is just the way Denise functions, and it's actually a really good way to function, because you have your time. We did set this time for this time, so why would, so, you know? I mean, I think a couple things. I think, one, probably it came through not doing it for a long time and being mm-hmm. exhausted and giving and, and just realizing I was empty inside. So I'm I'm really aware that I... If I see a student and don't have that 15 minutes to check up on emails and get my things in a row and breathe and just kind of do that, I'm not as good for them. Mm-hmm. And that's so important to me that when you come in and you have your 45 minutes, I am 100% on for you and that my space is available for you. So I realize that if I didn't do that stuff, and that's true for my friends, you know, like I've become very aware that like when I'm talking to both my sisters, talking to my dear friends, I am not multitasking. I sat, my sister Fawn called me the other day. I sat down on the couch. I was just fully present. People want to be heard and seen. So the more I can be present to myself, the more I can do that. And it came from just that realization of like, I was not doing well with it. Um, And I feel like, you know, I still really would love to get married and have children. And I feel like the more I can practice this now, the better wife and the better parent I will be because there's going to be things that you're going to have no control over when you're parenting. Like you cannot set boundaries. You cannot, there's so much I'm not going to be able to do that. The more practice I have over things that I have control over, it's going to enable me to be a better parent then. Um, I think I've also looked at people that I model after and see how Mm -hmm. they've been able to do it. Um, My sister Fauna, I mentioned had a very, very high pressure job that she recently left and I'm so proud of her courage. My sister Edina is a dean of students. She gets pulled in a thousand different directions. She still takes time for her family and slowing down and reading the New York Times. You know, and we always joke around when she, she'll take a half day off and she'll eat, sit in the hammock, eat popsicles. Like, that's the kind of stuff. So I always, I look and see how people who I admire, how they've been able to do mm-hmm. it. And then I've talked to people when I've screwed it up and like, this isn't good. So I think that's how, particularly when you're younger, to understand that this isn't something that's going to come to you. It's going to come because of learning from other people, mm-hmm. from kind of being like, ooh, that didn't, that didn't yeah. work, you know? Like um, Tal Ben-Shahar, one of my positive psychology professors that I had, um, talked about failing forward. Mm-hmm. And I love that term, right? Like failing forward, like, oh, I failed. I didn't do this well for myself, but I'm going forward in the direction I want to be so deep it is it's very much like Brene Brown's work and to be failing forward requires being vulnerable Mm -hmm. being open knowing that you know it means 
it means it's going to hurt sometimes. And that's okay. That's okay to feel pain. Like it's when we're not okay with that, when we're not okay with acknowledging, oh, I screwed that up. This isn't my you know, best thing, or I didn't take care of myself. You know, it, it requires to be vulnerable with ourselves and with others. And did you, did you feel that was easier for you because you're a woman or harder in a way to be vulnerable to other people? Because sometimes I feel this pressure to, not sometimes, all the time, feel this pressure to like have it together and be like, because I don't want to be seen as weak. And I think society has told women that we're automatically weaker and so you know I've never felt that way yeah it's interesting I've never you know professionally personally in my life I think it's hard yeah I think think probably with dating that's probably an area where I struggle with is being vulnerable with dating um but professionally you know again both my parents have always thought I could do anything so they'd allowed me that space. They never thought it was crazy. Let me go quit my job and go to move to Montana in the middle of the woods, the electricity, or let me do this stuff. Like, you know, they've thought it also helped that I have a role model of a father of a man in my life. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I've had good relationships with some men in my life that I've dated that like, again, allowed me to be vulnerable in that way. Um, I've never struggled with that. I have to be honest as a woman. Mm -hmm. And it's funny um, one of my dearest friends who runs the Career Center at the Peace Corps, Jody, and I always say that we love messy people. I've always been, I've never loved people who were totally polished. Mm-hmm. That always felt very unreal to me. I always liked the person, like, that's why I love Brene Brown. She comes mm-hmm. in in jeans, you know? You know, like, I'd be the person who's about to go train on something and I spill something on my shirt. My hair is going to always look out of place. Yeah. You know, I love, and it's not to knock people who are very polished, but I just, I've always been drawn to people who are very real, very real and very authentic. So I don't think I've ever bought into that. I've had a couple um, bosses, uh, Susan Savelle I mentioned when I was up in Maine, who just were like very authentically themselves and had made an extraordinary difference in the work she did. So I could see examples of that. So that's a great segue into my last question for you is, so how do you define womanhood or being a woman? Gosh, gosh, I've never really thought about that way. I, you know, it's really funny. I've never like really thought about it in those terms. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is it's not, it's, it's, it's human, humanhood. You know, I, I just think, I think that men, women, or however someone identifies, there's, it's embracing all of who you are, whether you have, you know, the traditional feminine, you know, that it's equal rights for everybody. Um, I, I know it's really funny, but for me, it's whatever, however you identify, it's whether it's womanhood or manhood or whatever, you know, however you identify with this, it's just being your authentic self and standing up for what you believe is right. Like oh. everybody should have equal access to everything and absolutely there should be no judgments. No no one person for any race, religion, creed, anything should be anything. So I oh. feel like womanhood, I I want to support anybody in any way in that role. Oh. You know, I mean I definitely think that this is an extraordinary age for women. I have been truly inspired by, I mean I've been, I've been so inspired by the Women's Leadership Fellows, the mm-hmm. people coming up. I've been inspired when I was at the march after um, the Women's March. Mm-hmm. Um, to see in particular young women 
who are like, we're not taking this. Mm -hmm. You know, there is nothing off limits for anybody anymore. So when I think of womanhood, I think it's owning who you are, however you identify, however you want to embrace who you are, and making space for everybody else to be in that place with you. That's such a good answer. I love this question. It's my favorite question. It's a great question. I never thought about it. It really got me thinking. It's deep. It's deep. Yeah. All right, people, we are going to take a short break and then be right back. everybody and we are back. Um, I'm your host Natalia again and we're here with Denise and she is going to talk about a couple tips and tricks in her capacity as being a lady and advising on um, on career search on what she thinks can really add a value uh, to you. So Denise, first kind of suggestion that you would have for anyone going through this job hunting process or transition process. So it's so funny. The first word that comes to mind is messy. Mm -hmm. You have to embrace the messiness. Very, very few careers, very few career searches are like this straight and narrow path. It is a messy process. I always say it's a career jungle gym Mm -hmm. where you might go one direction. All of a sudden you take a slide in the other way. So you have to have fun with it. And I also often equate this to like when you're going through the process of exploring, it's like you're cleaning your closet and you're Mm -hmm. in the middle and everything's dumped out and you think it'll never get organized again. It's a process and you have to embrace it. It's when you resist the reality of it that I think people struggle and and they want it to be in a certain way. And you just kind of, when you embrace the messiness, whether it's rewriting your resume, whether it's building a relationship with people, whether it's how you get your promotions, um, there's, you, you have more ease with it. And do you think that people kind of give up at the very beginning or do you think it's like after the first rejection, like I put in all this work and I embrace the messy? Yeah. You know, I think people, people uh, give up at different stages of it. What's important, and you just hit something on there, like I, I put all this work in there, is, is two things. Is one, you have to think about your inputs and then you have to not take things personally. Is one, mm-hmm. you know, you have to make sure, you know, you, you're approaching the job search process from the best way your resume needs to be in that like one percent you need i was just watching something where they say you're trying to get the recruiter it's not just that they're reading for seven seconds but to get them through seven second increments mm-hmm. get them to read it for seven seconds and then seven seconds more so that resume that cover letter has to be impeccable but you also should be very very qualified for that position i see people getting frustrated because they're applying for jobs where it's such a stretch Mm -hmm. and then also knowing that 70 percent of jobs come through employee referrals so are you leveraging your network do you know the organization so thinking about the way you're approaching that specific job application and then knowing that sometimes when you don't get it, it has nothing to do with you and not to take it personally, mm-hmm. that someone might have been more experienced, internal hire, and understanding that there's not like this is the only job you're ever going to get and to have the patience with that. So in terms of that, if they do mostly internal hires, what do you think 
what do you think is like your best advice on how to kind of combat that if you don't know anybody there and if you obviously don't already work at the at the company or organization what is your best advice on how to like push past that well first of all I would say do whatever you can in the take a long-term view to building what I call career capital Mm-hmm. And this is not just everybody talks about, you know, building a network. This is not just like having networking meetings. This is about being innately curious about people in your field, and building long term relationships mm-hmm. with people, getting involved in the field, you know, volunteering for organizations, serving on boards, uh, doing work in your community. Um, there's so many ways to be involved and build career capital and to build your community of support for people. So that's one thing. So, But then if you're like in the case where you see the job and you don't know somebody, mm-hmm. again, what you need to do is that resume has to be impeccable. It has to be word for word using the phrases. It has to be results oriented. You know, in that resume, there needs to be in that professional profile making, you know, grabbing their attention for your understanding about the work that they do. In that cover letter, that opening line of your cover letter, if you've gotten through the resume Mm -hmm. and you don't know somebody, that opening paragraph, I always say, is your virtual handshake. So don't start it with, my name is, don't start it with, I saw this job posted here, Mm -hmm. don't pander to them, don't use words that don't add value. Immediately talk about, if you don't know someone in there, maybe you've been using the reports of that that think tank for many years through your research. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've been following something that they've done. Make a connection. If you don't have any of that, immediately establish how you would be a value add in that first line. Not that you're perfect for the job, Mm -hmm. that's not the words I want to have. Don't say you're uniquely qualified, but immediately say, this is how I could hit the ground running for you. So what would be like a, a, because I feel like that's what I always do. I'm like, hi, my name is Natalia. And like, I saw this position after like evaluating. So what do you think is a better kind of introduction? Like if you were to give like a very basic. In a cover letter? Yeah. You know, it would be, you know, with, if if it was someone for you, you know, with, um, um, you know, having, um, you know, core understanding of these analytical skills and experience in communicating through podcasts and written papers and, you know, like mm-hmm. very, very specific, bam, this is what I can do for you that is matching what they're looking for. Mm. So you're immediately saying, having achieved great success building partnerships within local-based communities and national nonprofits, I would be able to hit the ground running as your member, you know, outreach specialist with this, mm-hmm. you know, and then there might be something, you know, both my professional and my uh, volunteer experience reinforce why I want to work on, you know, um, increasing access for disadvantaged youth to higher education. So you're immediately telling them what you're bringing to the table. That's good. That's good. See, this is why <laughs> we bring you on the show, <laughs> just to just have like a basic workshop of what we need to yeah. do. Do you ever say your name in that opening paragraph? Never, never in really? a never in the opening line. You never because you're signing the you're signing your letter at the end. So same you know thing with an email. You what? don't say you never in an email say I never start an email and say my name is. I will say, you know, I was referred to you by this, but or you know, as the director of this career center, I'm interested in connecting with your organization organization for employment opportunities for my students you never start to say you never say hi my name is that's so interesting and I feel like that's so counter to what I've been taught my entire life well and one thing I will say to you first of all 
all of this is an art, not a science. So what mm-hmm. I'm offering you is based on my experience. I've been in the field for 12 years and my knowledge. You sit down and I do panels with HR all the time. I'm always listening to things. Everybody in HR has a different opinion on things. So there's no hard and fast. So mm-hmm. this is my opinion on it. But I feel like starting with my name is, isn't a value add. You, mm-hmm. Your name, you sign it at the bottom. They, they have your name there. You immediately want to grab them right with that line. Every single word needs to add value. You know, everything that you do, I think about when I got my master's in policy, my professor was so hard on this and the way he would make us write policy memos. I take that same philosophy to everything I do with careers. He used to take our policy papers, which you study tons of information Mm -hmm. and you're writing a policy brief, right? Well, when you do a cover letter and a resume, it's the same thing. You have tons of information about your life. You're doing almost like a policy brief on yourself. Mm -hmm. He used to say to us, minimize the number of times I write the word why on your paper. Why is this word here? Mm. And when we start in the beginning of the semester, your paper would be covered with the word why. Because every single word when you're doing a policy brief has to add value because you're only reading something very short. You're doing policy briefs for yourself in your introduction or emails, your cover letter, and your resume. So make sure every – it's one of those things you guys know here. I can't stand the word passion or diverse or various because <laughs> there's no value add in that word. It's just like a filler word. Right. Like I, when people always do strong communication skills, what does that mean? Everybody like you are this – you have and tell you in front of me this amazing ability to be able to bring people in the way you communicate. You bring people in. You're an active listener. You You kind of bring out the best in people. That's, you want to figure out a couple words that synthesize that (laughs) instead of saying you have strong communication skills. Mm -hmm. So be specific on who you are. And I can tell you that Denise is the whiz at doing that. I sound so much more impressive on my resumes than I think I do in real life. You actually (laughs) are that person. It's just just you're putting on the cleaner clothes. It's just you're putting on the nicer clothes. And that's, you know, three years of doing that. I just know these language. And and every day I'm trying to get better at it. Every day I just listen to a webinar right now on this, like Mm -hmm. before this session. Like I'm always trying to get better on it. So what is the biggest um, mistake or like downfall that people that you advise either here in school or out in, like, your side business? Like, what's the biggest downfall you see them um, have? One thing that I do see people do is everybody says, I'm a bad networker, as if they're the only person that is. <laughs> you know, it's finding a way to build relationships that feels authentic to you. And again, I like to remind people that not only does the research historically through decades support this and it's not this schmoozy thing that oh well I know this person so they got me this job without being qualified it's that it's very hard to know people in black and white on the resume Mm -hmm. so when you've met with somebody there can say oh my god I met with Natalia you know what she might not have everything we're looking for but I really respected x y and z about her let's bring her for the interview and then you land the job Mm -hmm. so you get differentiated so people shy away from that it is the other big mistake I see is that it's just so easy to call job boards and send jobs because you get this little dopamine fix. Oh, yeah. check it off. I sent that off. Mm-hmm. But the return on investment, the ROI on it, has been shown to be significantly lower. And so, what is, so what do you mean by that? Like The people will just, you know, you, you apply for a job. You can say, oh, I applied for 10 jobs this week. Yeah. And people get a little dopamine fix because they can check that off because mm-hmm. the other side is messy. Mm-hmm. You know, identifying organizations you want to be a part of, joining their LinkedIn groups, building relationships, going to events. You don't see the, oh, I submitted this job, so someone's going to look at my resume. Mm-hmm. The other side's messy. 
but it's also building a long-term relationship no matter what sector you're in and this is true of every single sector these are relationships of people that you will hire they might hire you that you might work with that you partner with you know this that you're that you know when you run for office these are people who might donate money to you mm -hmm. you know these are people these relationships manifest themselves in really long-term kind of a spider webby kind of way mm -hmm. but that doesn't get you that immediate fix that sending out a job does do you would you recommend more so applying for jobs through the the website like the physical website of that organization versus doing it through like an indeed or like a zip recruiter because i know it's like those those things like i have my resume automatically uploaded so a lot of times i can just be like send like just send you my never, resume you know what and i mean you, you never want to just generically send a resume mm -hmm. ever Every single job that you do, you want to look at your resume and you want to revise it based on the language on that job description. Mm -hmm. Every single job. So I think the challenge is when people have their resumes loaded in those kind of like jobs boards mm -hmm. is they do. They just hit send and they have not taken the time to revise their resume. And I don't care if you're applying to five different research analyst jobs. Each organization's values are different. Their causes are different. The language in the job description is different. You increase your odds by not just hitting send, but taking that resume and refining it. And sometimes when you start to do this, this could only take a half an hour to just be like, okay, these are the keywords they're looking for. My professional profile now speaks to what they're looking for. They know, recruiters say this all the time, they know when people are just sending them random. Mm -hmm. So whether or not, you know, you're going to get through a screen any differently if you apply to their website or versus if you apply to the zip recruiter, it, to me, it's more the fact of, are you personalizing every resume, every cover letter? Mm -hmm. And do you think that over time we become more accustomed to that? Because I feel like that's where the messy comes in or people like thinking they have time because I find that when you're in a position of... Like, you may have a job, but you need to get another one, or it's, you know, like, this internship or fellowship is going to end. You're like, I don't have time to, like, redo everything. So is it that, like, a learned behavior over time? It'll get to just a half hour? Or? You know, it gets easier. There's no question it gets easier. But I will tell you, you will have less results and more frustration if you are just saying, I don't have time, and just randomly send them out. Because then you're going to be spending, you know, rather than spending sending 10 of them out, take two and personalize two of them and make it the best ones, you're going to increase the odds you're going to get that job than just sending 10 of them randomly. Mm -hmm. And the thing, um, you know, research shows this, it's called implementation intentions. Peter Goldwitzer at NYU has done a lot of work around this, around what's called when, where. That when people actually set out when, where they're going to be doing something, they're significantly more likely to do it. So when I work with students and clients and, you know, we're near the end of a coaching session or advising session with the students, I'm like, okay, so here's what we've outlined for you to do. When are you going to do this and actually where? And the where is I'm going to be going to this coffee shop. I'm going to go to the library to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have this spot in my house and it's going to be from 930 to 10 at night. And then I'm going to reward myself with something afterwards. And I'm going to prime myself with some positivity priming before. And even if it's that half an hour and you put it on your calendar, you can create the time. And it is. It is when you have a job, looking for a job is, an, is, is a full-time thing. But you can manage it differently. Mm -hmm. And just those simple techniques of the when, where. He also does a lot around if, then, to plan for contingencies. Mm -hmm. That's so good. 
Okay, what is your big, what is like your big, your one last, this is what you must do in this crazy time and messy time of finding positions, trying to better yourself? What is like your big, this is what you have to do? You know, what comes to mind immediately is you have to know what gifts you bring. You, if you don't approach this from a place of strength, it, you're not going to know what your differentiator is. You're not going to know what's good about you. I just did a, a volunteered a couple days ago at an organization called the Asylum Seekers Assistance Project. And there were, you know, 15 people there that are refugees from all over the globe. And I did a three-hour workshop with them on resumes and cover letters. I started with them identifying their strengths, and I finished with them owning their strengths at the end again. These are people, you want to talk about people who need to find a job very quickly, who are in difficult situations. They've been granted asylum in the States, but very difficult often supporting families. And I said, I would be failing you if I did not have you take the time to know what your gifts are. Because then you write your resume from a place of positivity. When your brain is prime for positivity, you have greater peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. Your brain opens up to see possibilities. So if you know your strengths, then if you don't get that job, you know, okay, but I, it doesn't it doesn't impact my self-worth. Mm. If, you know, when I sit down to write my resume, if I go to prepare an interview, they've actually shown when people take one minute before an interview to write down their strengths in mock interviews and then go in, the group that did that, significantly more likely to get recommended to be hired Ooh. from taking 60 seconds to recognize your strengths. So the more it, the more you know what your gifts are, we all can so easily, I could sit here right now and list everything that are weaknesses of mine, <laughs> but you want to know what makes you, you, mm -hmm. and then own them and then approach your job search from that place. It's going to help you with the way that you approach it, the way you build relationships, your resume, your interview, even the way you start out on the job, because you're coming from a place that's like, these are my gifts. These are my talents. This is what I can do. It's not bragging about them. It's owning them. There's mm -hmm. a difference between that. That's so awesome. You did so... Oh, this is why I love you. So great. Thank you so, Thank so much. You. It's been such a joy. Is there anything that you have that you want to plug? Anything that you're working on that you want to... Well, I, 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 my own, in addition to my job here, which I absolutely love, yeah. I have my own career happiness coaching business. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always doing presentations and workshops and individual coaching. I read a, a blog, which I just wrote one, on the holy grail of Danish career happiness <laughs> based on my vacation earlier yes, this I summer. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> um, but I'm always happy, so please feel free to check out career happiness um, um careerhappinesscoaching.com and my resources are there and you can get connected with me there awesome i really encourage everybody out there to check that out because denise is fabulous and i get her and so free are you in a weird way <laughs> oh thank you you're amazing um, not free because gw costs money but <laughs> but she's still super fabulous so thank everybody thank you everybody for listening please follow us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pretty Face Lady 3. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.